Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. And now your host, A.L. Levy. All right, so welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and on with me is someone who I've known for over a decade, have worked with, have not talked to for a while, have talked to again after a while, um, have been on various projects with, and who uh, I've watched play in other projects, and maybe one of my favorite musicians I've ever worked with. When I met him, he was more of a guitar player uh, and was starting to get into synth. Uh, that was back in like 2005 when my band Doth would play with his band from Exile. And um, over the years, he started to get more and more into synth and started to kind of develop his own thing. Whereas most synth guys that played in metal, with the exception of, you know, with the exception of a few talented ones, were just kind of like rejects that played horrible presets um badly you know they, they like they dial up the race car sound uh and try to play guitar solos on keyboard and just ruined everything um meanwhile eric was making things sound really really cool he was doing keyboards in the way that i hope that someone would do them which is use the power of of synth to make really really cool atmospheres and melodic sounding instruments and just almost like another guitar that doesn't have the limits of a guitar. So uh, he started working on records with me, like Doth Records and um, solo album I did with Emil Worsler called Levy Worsler Avalanche of Worms. And uh, then I tried to start getting him on as many studio projects as I could just because um, I don't know shit about programming synth. I mean, I know the basics, but I don't do a good job, never have. And... The dudes in the bands I was recording didn't do a good job either. They were even worse than me. Um, and then all the normal keyboard players that you would call did the stuff I talked about earlier, which is put on the race car patch and then try to play guitar solos on keyboards. And we don't have time for that when we're trying to make good music. So um, I tried to get him on everything. And then he got on the contortionist, uh, the album I did, Intrinsic, all the keyboards are Eric. Um, and kind of the rest is history. Then he joined the band um, and has been with them full time. And I know that he does several other things. And so we're here to talk about. So Eric Gunther, welcome to the podcast. I hope that I was accurate in my brief history of your life. 
uh, that was uh, that's quite an introduction to follow up. To be honest, it's a lot to live up to. But thank you, Al. Um, it's all true. Yeah, I I, I definitely got to give you credit for uh, throwing lots of cool projects my way for you know where where I'd be sort of relevant as as a synth player. Something you know, some places I could be useful in the contortionist thing just sort of worked out very organically. Um, it's funny too that. The reason that I got you involved with that is because they had a member who's no longer there who did all the synth stuff, and it just sounded like it sounded like a fucking toy. I was like, this record is so cool. And then you have these like toy sounding, like toy strings with like toy percussion, lots of percussion elements, but they all, everything just sounded like you bought like a Casio my first keyboard rig. <laughs> and it was like, God, this is going to ruin everything. This is going to ruin everything. We got to get Eric. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I feel like if anything the on intrinsic I I was able to take some of the parts that were there and just sort of uh paint them a shade or two more organic, I guess, and a little more hairy and try and pull it out of like sample land or whatever. So that's something that you actually do really really well is you make your synth sound how, I mean, I don't know how you can think of a synth as organic, but if there was a way that you could think of it that way, that's kind of how your sound. Do you think that that's your, from your background as a guitar player? Um, I would definitely say something about having experiences, you know, playing guitar on stage and in the studio. Whether it's guitar or any other instrument, I think just spending time with anything else kind of gives you a better uh, bird's eye view and a better sense of the big picture so really i would say that you know playing the keyboards in a band is just sort of it's like a it's you know it's just like a position on the baseball field or something and at the end of the day what's really valuable there are your, your decisions and sort of kind of how you steer the ship whether you're playing keyboards or anything so so you're not looking at it from the perspective of this is my instrument. I'm going to, I'm going to like snake, nah. place my stake in the ground. And this is me. You're looking at more as what does, what am I doing for the team right now? It's, it's helpful to take that. Yeah. You're definitely generally looking at it as what, what am I doing for the team right now? And trying to look at a bigger picture because the, I think the instrument itself lends itself to that because you have, you know, a lot of the job is sort of archiving tones and sounds and making those tonal decisions. Um, even though, like, guitar players, they kind of definitely have a lot of the same kind of decisions to make. I, I feel like you can go so much crazier with it with keyboards and, and electronic sounds. That that's, Well, they can, be, they can be anything you want. I feel like right. with guitar, guitar has a wide range of expression, but it's still, as wide as it is, there's a few things about the guitar which, I guess, prevent it from being a true melodic instrument, for instance, which is sustain. You know, just mm -hmm. just the fact that you can't sustain forever like you could on a violin or something mm -hmm. um, without the use of, like, technology to help you. Um, mm -hmm. with awkward technology, because, like, yeah, you could get, like, an Ebo on there, but... Uh, but that's it, still it, emulating awkward. Yeah. You know, some other quality of a of a different instrument, basically. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like the guitar itself is limited in terms of how far you can go. Whereas with synth, you really are not limited. Right. And, and that's kind of the way I think that's a healthy way to think about it. When you sort of take, take it on as like your job to be, uh, sort of spreading your wings and, and getting crazy with tones and just sort of going, going out to space with it. Because essentially in a rock band format, like the rest of your bandmates are, are sort of, sort of T-balling you up for that. You know, they're, you got a drummer holding it down and the rhythm section's doing its thing and the guitars, you know, they're going to play chords and play leads and they're going to play like guitar players. But, uh, you know, so you're, as a, I guess as a keyboard player, it's nice to think of it as sort of being more free to explore weird sounds and stuff because like the, the core of the band is there for you already, already doing the thing, you know, that's, that's actually quite a, that's actually a lot deeper than I think you may realize what you just said. Cause I think the problem that I was talking about earlier with a lot of keyboard players is that they don't look at it that way. They look at it too much like, uh, a showcase yeah. rather rather than something that's working with with what's already there to complement it. Yeah, for sure. It you know, it's strange. Now, now I haven't really thought about it in this way, but since you brought up the guitar thing, I I feel like my love of guitar and, you know, my motivation and inspiration for playing it for however many, you know, since I was 12, you know, everyone loves guitar and it's kind of a glorified instrument in a way, but and I, and I think I got into more virtuosic playing and more of that sort of, you know, lead guitar, you know, attitude. And then when I, when I started taking more keyboard gigs, I kind of realized that that's not, maybe not my value. It's really not where I need to live musically. I think, I think I was kind of happy to sort of shift into keyboard gigs because I found that I was much better at, sort of sensing that bird's eye view. I keep saying that, but looking at the big picture and being able to figure out what needs to happen here to fix this problem or what to, to sort of make a better song, essentially. It's funny what meeting a true virtuoso can do for your perspective, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't need to enter that boxing ring, you know? Yeah, yeah that's kind of that's kind of how I felt like when I... Uh, not just when I started playing with Amel, before that, like there were some people at Berkeley that were just like, holy shit. Yeah. I, I, there's no way I could do this. Um, like, I mean, I, I definitely believe that, like, you know, limitless potential, but eh, to a degree. Like, I also think that we're, I guess we're bound by certain limitations that our physical body mm-hmm. uh, can or can't live up to. And there's just certain levels of, speed and accuracy that I think kind of like some people are designed to be Olympic athletes or, mm-hmm. you know, the guys that make it to the major leagues and baseball or whatever. It's the same with musicians. There are just some people that are born predisposed to be maniacs. Right. And I'm not one of them and never have been. But, but that's kind of like, that's kind of part of the point there is like, it's yep. super healthy to realize that and see this person's over here doing his thing, and I, and when we need him to do his thing, we'll tap him on the shoulder, and there he is. But it's sort of, I don't know. I guess, I guess, as a guitar player, I noticed being more into, you know, all all the all the great guitar players, you know, that that come up when you when you have the discussion. I was way into guitar, and I was you know playing 
solos and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's interesting that now it's like sort of changed because, because, you know, you've gained that perspective and I guess kind of realize what, how you can help more, you know, what you, because every, every guy out there that can rip like that, they probably need a decent songwriter and someone who can write chords and figure out how to make their songs not sound like shit because so many of those shred records sound like shit, you know? Yeah, well, look, and that's not to say that guys who shred are not capable of writing. I know they are, but it's more of kind of what I was talking about er earlier. There's this uh, cliche phrase I really like, which is you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything. Sure. And so I feel like with virtuoso guys, um, and I I call them virtuosos because I really do respect the ability that they've that they've risen to, like accomplished. It's no small thing to be that good in an instrument. It's years and years of sacrifice and dedication. But if that's what you're sacrificing, dedicating yourself, that means you're not spending those years and years on writing. Right. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the same way that writers don't spend years and years working on their chops generally. And so they aren't as typically they're the guys in the band that are not as good mm-hmm. at soloing. You know, it, it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And so you find good symbiotic relationships there as long as everyone understands their role. Mm-hmm. That I guess that's kind of what you hope for is that people understand their roles. It makes for it makes for a healthy uh, environment. You know, that's that's how you make it happen. <laughs> so let's talk about your. Uh, approach to keyboards sounds because I've never really seen anyone kind of work like you do. And I I know that there's a few others out there who get crazy with guitar amps, but like you kind of, well, do cool shit. (laughs) Let's talk about it. I kind of, uh, you know, when I, when I was first, I guess, recording keyboard stuff, I I wasn't really prepared for it. I didn't, I didn't, have 10 years worth of, you know, keyboards stocked up and sounds and stuff. I kind of was stabbing around for whatever tools I could use. So I started learning about a few plugins that worked out, um, that I still use today. Um, stuff like which ones Omnisphere is the easy one to go to that, that covers a lot of bases, but I I've kind of gotten bored with it. Um, it's super useful and, you can find all kinds of great tones in it, but I find that I've been able to get weirder and more interesting stuff out of more obscure stuff. Uh, I've been using a plugin called Diva a whole bunch for years. That's been sort of my secret under the hood weapon. Um, Diva, I yeah. like that name. Um, that that company U dash H E. All all their plugins are pretty sick. So I kind of started with uh, plugins and then. Lately, I've been buying a few more analog synths for this record. I got a Behringer uh, DeepMind 12 and a Dave Smith Mofo X4, which the Mofo X4 kind of ended up being, for Clairvoyant, kind of ended up being the hero of the record for me. I probably used it on, I mean, definitely every song, maybe for most of every song. I feel like you're leaving some stuff out, though, because even if you were starting with plugins you had whole reamping chains put together with yeah. guitar guitar amps and pedals and 
the the all first kinds of stuff. Well, the, I guess the larger point that I was thinking of was that every time I've had a session, I've sort of had to scramble and figured out what toys I'm using for that session, which at first it was a matter of necessity because I didn't have this, you know, collection of boards and everything to work from. But after a few records of doing things that way and barring a keyboard from here for a couple of weeks or barring a keyboard from here, like I've, I kind of, I kind of make it part of the process now. It's kind of like I enjoy having to get creative with a weird set of toys every time. So, I guess when we did uh, Avalanche of Worms, I had this great old uh, Yamaha CP30. It's like Yamaha's '80s, uh, you know, wannabe Fender Rhodes kind of thing. Doesn't really sound nearly as good, but it had a few cool uh, D2 knobs, and so. Literally, just finding that weird quirk of this old keyboard um, sort of made the whole character for everything I recorded on that record because I used it a lot and it, and it made for a really cool tone when I would double it up and put it through. Uh, like I had a I had an old Marshall that I would run it through uh, just to sort of get some grit. But didn't you have a dual wreck as well? Yeah. Um, I didn't use it as much because I thought I th- actually thought the Marshall sounded better with the keyboards. I tried it a couple times, but uh, so okay. So walk us through that entire routing setup that you had, like um, well, for that the the I, that and the Doth record were pretty similar, right? Yes, I I used that pretty much the same idea. I used it a bunch on the Doth uh, record. It's well, they happened. They took place six months apart, so that makes sense, right? I basically, most of my tools for both of those records were some plugins like Omnisphere and, and Diva, but um, at that time, mostly Omnisphere. But I also had a, uh, a Moog Prodigy, which is a monophonic bass synth, which I really loved using. I mean, it's super simplistic, but running that heavy thing through a guitar amp made some really gnarly tones. And uh, that led to so many mixed fights. Yeah, that well, that's because another. I, want, I wanted that shit loud. I was like, turn like that sounds so cool. Turn the fucking rhythm guitars down. Make that loud. And man, it led to some brutal fights. <laughs> well, I mean, that's really. It's funny you mentioned that because I've found over the years the more I do stuff like that, and I and I don't do it as much. But when I do run stuff through amps, I've sort of learned how to treat it a little bit differently and and EQ it and compress it in a certain way so that it doesn't fight with that middle guitar layer of of uh I guess lower and lower the mids. lower mids. Yeah. yeah, that that's just for anyone listening who's not sure what the blowout fights were about. They were because I was envisioning a sound that was not guitar and not keyboards, but a hybrid of the two. And when you lots of metal mixers like they kind of their thing is guitars rhythm guitars like it is a certain sound that they have in their head and they want that and they work their asses off to get the perfect metal tone and the perfect metal tone does not involve cutting it in half to give the other half of it to a keyboard right um that's something that like Muse used to do back then. And like, I was kind of, that's, I wanted more of that. And uh, so it just, 
led to some brutal fights because lots of the keyboard parts were arranged to be right there where the guitars were. And so if you try to give them both 100%, that's not going to work. And if you give the guitars 90 and the keyboards 10, well, then that kind of is not the vision anymore. And then if you go to like 50-50, then the mixer's going to get mad because he's not, <laughs> not, he's not getting his badass guitar tone in there. Mm-hmm. So, fuck, it got brutal. Um, so I'm glad that you've figured out how to make it a little easier for mixers. Well, I mean, it's just, it's really been trial and error, to be honest. I've, I, even, I even have ways that I wish I, I had done a few different things on Clairvoyant that, you know, and we only finished that a few months ago. So it's interesting trying to trying to learn because I, I come to I come to things usually I come to music that we're working on with a, a melodic and I'm thinking about notes most of the time, maybe slightly before I'm thinking about tones. Sometimes I'm thinking about tones next, but I'm not thinking about the mix all the time, you know, so sometimes I have to catch myself and I learn, you know what, if I'm just thinking about notes here, I have to, you know, figure out how to write this so that it's not going to conflict with this part going on or whatever. We had a few similar types of discussions uh, actually that were uh, about specific parts in the record that had, you know, some low repetitive baseline that we sort of had to finesse to mesh with the, the, like an arpeggiated bass synth or something like that. Um, so it never ends, I guess. We, you know, we pretty much had had it was it wasn't as it wasn't quite a blowout argument, but it was still something. Uh, it was still something to consider. Well, I don't see how anyone in the contortionist could be capable of having a blowout argument. Um, oh, it's capable. That, it's capable. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I guess when I when the record I was working on, everyone was like 19 and scared. (laughs) (laughs) So like, (laughs) I mean, they were like the quietest group of people I ever met in my life. (laughs) They're sweet Indiana boys, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty chill. And I, I do appreciate, I do appreciate that. Yeah. It was like, it was the one of the chillest records ever. It was so chill it kind of drove me nuts, though. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think that what what you're talking about is just better arrangement skills, and better arrangements equal better mixes, always. Sure, yeah. But that's not to say that some awesome sounding arrangements weren't carved to be that way. When you had two things that. Uh, you know, two things that conflict and you got to figure out how to carve them. So is there a way that you could verbalize any of the techniques you've picked up for arranging your parts better? Or is it more of just a feel thing? It kind of is a feel thing. Sometimes, sometimes there are, there are times that we're working with uh, Jamie super easy because he's pretty well in tune with, you know, a problem. Um, before you even bring it up. So we would do every now and then I'd be like, Jamie, on this part, maybe we should, uh, you know, side chain a little bit of the bass synth or like boost the vocals in this part or cut, you know, just I'm hearing, Jamie, I'm hearing those lows clash with the Jordan's bass line. So maybe we should try something here. He kind of, he kind of did a good job at identifying those. And, and he's, I guess I was probably not 
quite as accurate with my arrangements for language. So since since he's already done a record of me sending him crazy synth sounds and everything, I think he knew what to look for um, and was able to sort of manage things so that it didn't get too hairy. But um, I don't know. It's like a double-edged sword with the keyboard thing because you're you're able to hit every frequency on the spectrum at any time you know your your sounds can go anywhere and so sometimes there'll be weird character to sense in context that i didn't notice because i was listening to it out of context and then we'd have to figure it out then so a lot of it's really just sort of shooting from the hip and and using your ears and listening to see uh how it sounds well, i think also in kind of piggybacking off what you said about you can reach any point on the spectrum at any point in time. Uh, do you feel at all like you have to restrict your creativity in order to fit arrangement, I guess, conventions that you're now starting to really understand, even if, even if they're just conventions in your own head that, you know, like the Eric playbook that you've kind of developed over the years. Um, you know, do you find that uh, now knowing a lot more about arranging properly that that makes you sometimes be like, no, nah, that part's not going to work? And is that ever a negative thing? No, I mean, I, I do catch myself sometimes being like, like you said, no, nah, that's not going to work. You know, this is this is too crazy. But at the same time, those are always parts that I cut out and I put aside for later, you know, just to figure out what went on or why some crazy noise is, is exciting me or why, why it interests me or whatever. Um, but most of the time, I kind of know better. There are some times, though, where I'm like, hey, guys, listen to this. Like, I'm going to take some liberties here. This is going to be wild. And uh, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. You got to choose your battles there, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, for sure. So can you talk about what your what your setup is like now. Um, cause it sounds like you have a lot more stuff than you used to. Yeah. I, uh, I've been using this deep mind 12 and, uh, the, the Dave Smith mofo X4 as much as I can, because they both sound amazing. Um, I'm still using live. I'm using, uh, Ableton that is running basically a few instances of Omnisphere and diva. Um, I still think right now Diva is like kind of the most used synth. <laughs> That's like my bread and butter. Um, but I need Omni- to look it up. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's Omnisphere works with a sample library, and Diva sort of it's described as uh, emulating analog circuitry. Uh, it's not using a sample bank, so it actually it eats your processor pretty fast, and it's kind of hard to run. Like it can it can get so detailed that it, you can't play it in real time. It, it you know it'll cause audio artifacts and stuff like that. But it sounds amazing and just super lush. And I I don't know. I've been using it for years now. Um, I guess right now I'm still using the Easy Keys stuff for all my electric pianos and live pianos or whatever. But that's pretty much it to be honest. That's, that covers all my bases for now. I just got these two new analog synths. So and to be honest, I, I, not coming from a background of analog synth 
and modular synth and all that. It's like it's a pretty deep well, and there's a lot to be learned already. Like I've, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of these things, and I've already used it for a record and a half. Do you still do use all the guitar rig stuff? I do, yeah. And I don't, I don't mean the the plug-in guitar rig. I mean actual guitar, physical yeah. guitar rigs. The the uh, I, I said earlier that the Mofo X4 was sort of my hero for the record, but the the real secret is the Mofo X4 in combination with a Strymon Capistan, which is this tape delay that decays in a certain way that creates these really great harmonic overtones in the in the delay repeats. I've never really heard a delay pedal like it. What, it just, what's it called again? A Strymon Capistan. Okay, because I have their Blue Sky, and it's yeah. incredible. That thing sounds great, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I just found I found that I love the the harmonic overtones of this of this pedal uh, in combination with the Mofo. It's like stuff that stuff that I don't think I would have noticed in the same way if I were playing a guitar with it. You know, like I, I the pedal would do its thing, and you'd hear, you know, the quality of the the tape delay emulation and everything, but something about the droney notes and things with the mofo really hit it. So I use that a ton. Uh, I'm, I'm having a stereo phase 90 built for me right now. Uh, what I've been doing is, is doing double tracking basically to a phase 90 at two separate rates, sometimes pan hard left and right. And so that oh, can... I re- dude, I remember I was going to I was trying to think of what pedal was it that you used the hell out of yeah. really well and it was a Phase 90. Yeah, and I mean that's a that's a that's a fairly stock pedal like everyone uses that pedal. It's a great thing, but I didn't realize how much what what exactly it was doing to the tone until I was using it with like electric pianos and uh like that Moog Prodigy I used it a bunch. Because it, it's the way it shapes the tone causes modulation in like the way the saturation happens, and then there's harmonics in that. And I don't know, it just it works really well with anything. <laughs> I remember that it's part of what really helped the the sounds you were making work with guitar arrangements. Yeah, it sort of sort of glues it in there a little bit. Because usually when I'm using the Phase ninety, it's going through the amp too, so that kind of rounds out the eq you know more more tell us more about Um, your pedal setup i just think i just think it's the coolest thing because i know i know what an impact it has on the tones that you're working with so um i recommend that anybody out there who really wants to take their synth stuff to the next level i know that lots of times i recommend plugins like decapitator for all you in the box people and that's really, really cool. There's a lot of cool things you can do with saturation plugins and, you know, Valhalla plugins. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, Shimmer is also modulated reverb, like that Blue Sky pedal I was talking about. Like, you can get close, but something, you're, it's just not the same as putting it through real pedals. It just isn't. It's not as good. And this isn't something like, oh, you got to get a Uri 1176 $7,000 compressor. Your vocals won't sound good. That's not what I'm saying. These pedals are not that expensive. I mean, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, you you can get one of these pedals and it just sounds better. And all you have to do is hook it up the way you would hook up a uh, reamp setup. Mm-hmm. I guess. So let's talk about this some more. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what I was using. On the last tour, I was using the Phase 90 and the uh, the MXR Carbon Copy, that, that green sparkle-looking delay pedal. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites. It just has... It's very straightforward, but it has really good uh, tone, and the delay reflections decay really well. Um, I don't know. It's I guess a lot of times I'm just sort of plugging random stuff in. I'll steal stuff from guys in the guys in Guitarland all the time just to try it out. Because a lot of times junky pedals for them, I can find a way to do something interesting with just because the what I'm sending to it, you know, a synth can be so whack. I can do all kinds of silly stuff. A lot of times that the octave pedals are the other, the other thing I would mention. Uh, I, I was using just a basic, what's the, what's the basic octave boss pedal OC two or something. It is. Yes. I have that pedal too. I love that pedal. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a classic. Um, I don't know. I, I actually was thinking about adding, uh, uh, axe effects or something to my rig because they can run in stereo and I can actually get a left and right channel. It surprises me that more of those amp modeling, uh, I guess products don't really, don't, don't really gear themselves towards being able to use, being able to send it a stereo signal and do everything. I guess the axe effects does, but axe effects does. And I actually, I don't like Axe Effects for guitar very much, but I think that for what you do, Axe Effects would actually be very useful um, because of how the the routing works in it um, and the way that their Axe Edit program works. It's just so easy to make sounds, and their effect sounds are incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I mean, the amp sounds are pretty good too. I just it's not my favorite, but the effects that you can pull out of that thing. It's mm-hmm. really, really, really awesome. I could see you getting a lot out of that thing. But yeah, like other than other than those, I haven't I haven't gone too crazy with uh, outboard effects. Just sort of kept it to those basic. Uh, well, what do you consider a junky guitar pedal? Well, like one that sucks for guitar, but that's good for you. Ooh, an example? Yeah, you got one. You got one, boy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there there are certain cool things. Uh, and I, I'm not even I can't remember what what it was, but interesting, more esoteric effects like ring mods and stuff like that. That like, you know, definitely apply to guitar players, but they don't. You don't you don't keep it on for the whole song and stuff like that. And I guess that's I, you know I wouldn't in a keyboard situation either. But I think just the nature of sort of sort of how you mentioned earlier how the guitar. The, the sustain issue with the guitar is kind of just a different beast. When you send those pedals something that's designed for a guitar and you're sending it a constant tone and everything, they, they behave differently. So sometimes like those weird ring mods and stuff like that sound better and like sound better on a keyboard than a guitar. That's a perfect example because I've always thought ring mods sound like fucking garbage on guitar. Right. I mean, they're cool and it, you use it for a part. And you know it's 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 a color of the rainbow, but it's such a violent effect that you you sort of are limited to that. Um, I don't know. I've, I've been able to get weird results out of like those kind of droney sustaining uh, keyboard patches going into some broken effect or something like that. 
I don't know, like, like the electric piano I mentioned earlier that I used on the on the Doth and Levy Worcester records, like having the those little micro detune knobs changed the whole thing. You know, that was like the that was like the prize of the of that instrument. And I think honing into that has led me to some really cool tones, you know, honing into that on any piece of gear or instrument. So it seems like you really get the most that you can out of whatever piece of gear you're working with before you really move on to a new one. Like, it sounds like you max it out. I, I try and poke it and prod it till it does something interesting, I guess. That's really the way I look at it. It's just, I'm just keep messing with it till I'm happy. I ha- I I have that keyboard still, but I, you're right. I've moved on. I haven't used it for a couple records now. Well, it's just, I figure it's one of those things that kind of like any type of artist, you you go through phases. And if you really, really explore the one thing, you know, at a point in your life where you're working on a particular type of output or project, and that's the project that you're experimenting like crazy with this one piece of gear, if you kind of like figure out how that piece of gear works for you and you use it all over a project, I can see how you'd kind of be over it. Well, and it it also helps because I'm sort of time stamping and giving a giving a feel to a specific record or a specific time, you know. So I kinda like that ability to use sort of different toys, a, a variety a huge a wide variety of different toys. Uh, on every record so that each record sort of has its own character and place in time in a way. Cause I, I, I may like on the, on the record we just finished, there's so much analog synth and, and really, you know, qual- quality and richness of tone. I, had, I hadn't been able to accomplish or I hadn't really dug into yet. And I might not do that again, you know. I think maybe the next record I'll go somewhere else with it, and use, and just not use any of the same boards, just to force force a different output. So it's it's interesting that you said the whole thing about stamping stamping a sound to associate with a certain period of time as a good thing, because sometimes people think that being dated is a bad thing. But it's so it's interesting because yeah. it's almost like the good side of that coin one thing is you don't want to be dated but to give something a nostalgic stamp i guess that's like yes that was 2009 yes that was 2010 yes that was 1997 or whatever um that's not a bad thing um right but it's interesting uh, where the fine line is between doing something that stamps something to an era in a good way versus it just sounding like dated old shit i guess i mean that's sort of the the line you have to draw and and decide how how you because no matter what there is there are going to be elements in your recording that tie it to a certain time whether it's the production quality any number of things but in the way that I was just speaking of it where I'm I'm using this set of keyboards on this record and maybe this slightly different set on this record and how it's helpful to have that variety I guess in your discography um that's one type of dating. Another type of, uh, I guess, dating an album is being able to listen to it in the context of, I guess, history and whether or not something sounds like it was from the 60s or 70s. So I guess 
in that sense, by a personal standard, it's a helpful thing. Mm -hmm. I think the effort usually with musicians is to, at least from my side of things, I hear more people try and make records that, or at least be cognizant of making a recording that doesn't sound like it's from 2017. But some, but you know, many bands are actually take the completely opposite approach and they want to sound like 2099, you know? Well, the thing is that I, you can't ever, you, you can't see it when you're working on it, but you can't ever escape, uh, I guess the, the production quality part of it that, stamps right stamps it into time right you think you can avoid it but you can't because you have no idea how good it's going to get in the future or what future technology is going to hold and future technology is always going to trump past technology when it comes to this stuff you know movies are going to keep on looking better and clearer uh same with recordings they're going to get clearer and bigger sounding mm -hmm. um and, you know, you can just listen to stuff from a few years ago and be like, man, weren't they, how are they not hearing this? Like, how are they not hearing that they got to cut those frequencies or boost that? Like, yeah. what were they thinking? It's just like, that's what they had evolved to at that point in time. Um, so there's no way you can get around that. There's going to be, I guess, uh, dead giveaways from the time period that you record it in. And I find that even with bands that try to like, like date their stuff and make it sound like it's from the 70s it still has this pristine quality to it it's like pristine it's like vintage pristine or something like it still sounds modern and even then i mean i maybe i'm playing devil's advocate but there there is the possibility of going too far in that direction where it's sort of a turnoff to me sometimes when bands try too hard to sound like they're from the 70s and wear bell, bell bottoms and stuff like that. Like sometimes, yeah, when, sometimes they, were, when goes, they were born in 1991. Exactly. Exactly. Like sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't work for me. So I guess, it, it, I guess there's a, there's a gray area. <laughs> I don't know. I've always thought that you should just try to make the most honest music possible. Right. Uh, that speaks, you know, from soul the most and the things like what time period you live in and are creating it in those things will just work their way in there whether you like it or not so i never used to worry about that stuff that's that's a good approach i think i mean it's there's nothing you can do about it you know that's mm -hmm. you live when you live um so i've got some questions here from the audience for you that i'd like to get to because there's quite a few of them cool um so here's one from Mike Nolan, who's not related to Christopher Nolan that I know of. But if you are, well, I'd love to get him on the podcast and Hans Zimmer <laughs> and Hans Zimmer too. So Mike Nolan, we're counting on you. Um, so he's saying the Contortionist has always been a huge inspiration to me. You're also one of the best live bands I've ever seen. I have two questions for you. Question one: How as a band did you evolve the musical direction from language to clairvoyance? And number two, what about your studio relationship with Jamie King stands out to you to keep you going back? Um, well, the first answer I'll give is that with language, uh, you know, Mike had just joined the band. Um, Jordan joined the band halfway through the recording session. Who's um, Jordan? He's our bass player. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know him. All right. 
Yeah, he used to. He played at Scale the Summit for a couple of years, and then he took like a couple of years off, and then uh, the opportunity for the contortionist came up, and it worked out pretty quickly. It, that happened very quickly. But I had been talking to the guys since working with them on Intrinsic with you, and then I guess I did Last Chance to Reason later that year, and so I had kept up with Mike too. Um, so we we had a working relationship. We had already been chatting about the record. We, we had already been talking about uh, me coming up to North Carolina to record with them, but we hadn't decided I was going to join the band full time. So after doing language and how well that turned out, I joined the band um, and started touring with them. And I think all the time we spent in the room, a, a lot of that turned into what um, Rediscovered became, uh, just sort of spending some extra time fooling around with with alternate ideas for songs and everything. We, we found out that it was easy for us to throw ideas around and we put, we put uh, rediscovered together pretty quickly. We, we wrote a lot of that on the spot uh, as far as like the, the new parts and everything, we would just come up with an idea and rehearse them and, and, you know, figure out an order. Okay, Robbie, you're going to jump over to the keyboard and then I'm going to do this. And I think that experience definitely helped helped all of us hone in to um, all of our strengths within the band and our roles within the band. And that's definitely reflected on the new record. Um, we, we just got, you know, more comfortable and sort of learned how each other works a little better. So it, it I mean, that's seems simple to say it just became a tighter machine, but all that time on the road and everything definitely changed the way the band worked. It's hard to describe what that does to a band unless you've experienced it. Yeah. And I mean, we, we already knew we could work in a studio session. So I was, I was relieved in a way that we could sit around in a room and behave that way. Sorry. What were you saying? I was just saying that I think that unless you've been on the road with a band and seen what it can do for your musical relationship, it's hard to describe, but it kind of gels you guys in this mm -hmm. weird way, like to where, the evolution of the project almost defines itself according to your relationship. I don't know how to describe it. Well, you know, as somebody that has had to work under many different band situations with all, you know, all kinds of random personalities between all the, you know, band dudes I've made tunes with over the years, I, I will say that, that my guys right now in the contortionists are pretty good to work with. I think we have a, we have a, so many song ideas that are unfinished from the last session. I mean, we really, I, I don't know. I feel good about, I feel good about working with the group of guys we have because we can, we churned out a lot of good stuff this year. I think that it just we, works. We're still going to work on. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just a good, it's just a good crew. So what about, and the second part of his question is what about your studio relationship with Jamie King stands out to you to keep you going back? Um, Jamie's a great musician on his own. And he is a very, uh, attentive and high, high paced guy. Really. He, he's following everything going on. And he, like I said earlier, he kind of is already aware of problems before you even bring them up sometimes. But, uh, he, he, uh, he does a good job at nudging us a few steps off the cliff, a few steps further, closer to the cliff, however you want to put it. Um, Mike likes working with them. They can fire, vocal harmony ideas back and forth. Um, I don't know. It's just a good, chill, easy 
work environment for us. And he, he, I think he works for us because he's generally, I mean, always willing to try new things. And, you know, we're, you know, we're a bunch of artists, you know, sometimes we're a bit disorganized and he's super patient with us and, and following through with, with our weird ideas when we, when we come to him. So I don't know. I think we just enjoy working with him. It's, it's it seems like a good match of personalities. Yeah, and I think the the attitude and the the vibe, if you will, of the studio um, can really affect the outcome. And the fact that, the fact that we're pretty comfortable and there's a good amount of musical and uh, technical trust with Jamie, it it relieves a lot of stress in certain areas so that we can sort of focus on our job. And yeah, yeah, Jamie's Makes great. Sense. So, I agree. Jamie is great. I'm very, very stoked to have him on Nail the Mix, and so should everybody listening to this. But uh, Tyler Hagginson's wondering, I think keys are always a tricky thing with heavier music. I love them, but there seems to be a line of overdoing it for a lot of people. Eric, your work always seems very complimentary and perfectly adjusted. How do you draw the line between too much and not enough of your approach to writing? Uh, I guess... Thank you. Um, but I wonder sometimes if sometimes I sometimes I think like when we had the discussion earlier about the mixing and interfering with the lower mids and that kind of thing. Sometimes I, sometimes I do. Um, I've had to piss you off a few times. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm like new to this instrument in a way. And, you know, back then. So it was like I was kind of throwing stuff at the wall with without many without any conception of what might stick um i i don't know how to how to draw that line other than to say it really just depends on the song and how things fit into the mix and everything else i mean it that that's kind of something that goes to like the idea of like musical trust within the band and stuff like that like and one reason i i like working with the guys in the contortionists is i can go to anyone in the band at some point and be like, hey, is this is this shot? Like, listen to this crazy shit right here. Is this is this fucked? You know, like Robbie's gonna be pissed, you know, or something like that. Like, we know <laughs> we know how everybody is gonna think about a part, and I and I like that. I like having that those those points of reference. So, I mean, there's an example, like a few examples on this record where I'd be like hanging out with Cam, and I'd be like, Cam should I take out that harmony? You know, it'd be like a, a really choppy part, a really crazy, like almost dream theatery, you know, that sound, it, it was a little video gaming and Cam was like, yeah, take that shit out, man. So that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff is helpful. And I think when you're, when you're in a, the right situation, you can very easily and comfortably throw shit at the wall that you kind of know is out of line, but because it's out of line and you know already that it's out of line, you can find where it should sit, but still be interesting to you. If that well, makes I think, sense. I think you answered what he asked perfectly. Cause to restate his question, he said, Eric, you always, your work always seems very complimentary and perfectly adjusted. And like you just said, you throw ideas at the band members all the time and, get their feedback and if they say yeah get rid of that shit you actually do get rid of that shit so like it is perfectly adjusted because you would you adjusted it 
Um, and it is complimentary because you made it be complimentary by adjusting it to what the people in the project were all collectively looking for. So it's not like you were like, this is my part. I will die by this part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to think of maybe an ideal state in, in a recording situation to be outputting enough ideas and recording enough music and, you know, really putting stuff out there enough so that you don't feel too married or invested in anything. Now, granted, that being said, I, I definitely will still choose my battles. There are definitely some parts where it's like, man, that part is way too sick. We cannot change that, you know, or whatever it is, you know. There are definitely parts where it's like, I definitely will fight for more than another part. But really, ideally, you're you're churning up so much dirt and, and so much stuff is going on and you're putting so much out there that you're not married to anything so much that it's like really bumming you out if something gets changed or moved. Because a lot of times, um, you know, I, I like to work with people that I know I can trust in certain areas, you know, like I can trust this guy with this type of question. And, uh, you know, I, I like, sometimes I like to make decisions that way and let, let whoever decide on this specific issue. Um, Makes sense. So here's one from Danny Clavin. Hey, Eric, any tips on writing keyboard layers like strings in uh, rock and metal for people without education? I'm a vocalist slash guitarist, and I just want to be able to do it myself, not relying on anybody for this. Maybe there's some useful literature on this subject, easy to understand and able to help doing this pretty fast. Thanks so much. Did you study this at all? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I, I was about to say, I feel like you're totally self-taught and like, well, just, you just did it. Well, I, I did take like piano lessons from like eight to 12 or something like that. So I had at least a basis in understanding a theory as far as like arranging f in, in, res in respect to tones and things like that is definitely something that just happened over time by year, you know, just experiencing it and trying different things, um, you know, trying lots of different layers. Right now, like I'll say that live, I, I use a couple different layers for say a basic pad or something like that. And I have one Omnisphere pad on one fader and this one Diva pad on another fader. And they both have slightly different qualities. The Diva pad is got this really heavy square waveness to it and the omnisphere pad is more floaty and and shimmery i guess and i for different parts i'll favor one over the other so certain parts require the more shimmery one and certain parts require more of the other one the more square wavy one but they're both often on at the same time just in different at different levels i don't really know how to answer that. There probably is a correct answer of like where to properly learn how to do it. But I, I just experimented until my ears liked what I liked what I was working with. And also you have a lot of, you wrote and write a lot on guitar and, and yeah. have always, and like vocals. And so, and you're an avid listener of music too. You are a writer, you're a music writer composer and always have been and you were doing that long before you jumped in with the synth stuff uh mm -hmm. i th feel like part of 
what made you good at it is that you just know how to write music. So you knew how to write parts that worked. Whereas you, so you're not just some guy, it's, it's, maybe you don't have like a formal education in it, but uh, you had the basis from piano and then you have years of writing on various instruments. So to inform your decisions mm -hmm. or back then when you were first starting. So I would think that like, in addition to just, jumping in that he should try to write on as many different instruments as possible so that his writing becomes divorced from his instruments. Like, I think that's the key is uh, don't think of a fretboard when you write, just think of music. Yeah, absolutely. Best way to do that is to not write at the guitar. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I guess similarly, it's like, I, I guess to back up something you said that, when I'm listening to music, it's a lot of times I'm archiving ideas and stuff like that and, and listening. It's like, it's a little bit like reading because unfortunately my overactive mind at this point is, you know, picking apart everything that's happening. And a lot of times that's what sticks with you. It's like, well, I remember this from that part and that really worked well. So let me try something like that. It really is just about using your ears to make those decisions. Yeah, your ears and your and like your instinct. Sure. Like and your tastes. That's the other thing that I always tell people and I really do believe this is you need to trust your taste. Like uh and you need to develop your tastes to the point where you can say I have good taste in music because if you really do have good taste in music and you really work on your writing, your taste will inform your decisions. So I think I have impeccable taste in music <laughs> and i may not be an impeccable guitar player but i have impeccable tastes i listen to great shit and i feel like that's part of why i've been able to get by with not being as good as other people is because it's helped me make really good decisions i mean not obviously not all of them are good but i've made enough good decisions to have allowed me to progress levels while not being that great technically and i do think that it's it's that understanding what you're listening to and having good taste part. Sure. Absolutely. And at a certain point, you know, any, anyone can play the part, anyone can get the music down or whatever, whatever the case may be. But at a certain point, what you're actually bringing to the table as a musician and what's actually valuable. And I mean, this can apply to any art and it seems almost redundant to say, but it really is your, your taste and your decision-making and how you, how you as the person designated to make that decision weigh, you know, whether to go right or left or what, whatever the decision may be. I, I mean, that, and that's, that's your value. That's like, that's what you're there to do. And that's what separates you from somebody not making that decision. Well, you've got great, like, I know I already said it, but I'll reemphasize, like, you've got great taste in music. And, uh, oh, thanks, bud. And I really, I've always thought that, like, I've always trusted your musical recommendations. You've never steered me in the wrong path. And, uh, like, and when you've liked stuff that I don't like, you always have a really good reason for it. Um, <laughs> like there's you well and that that that's important to me because I never I'm trying to expect, picture what that was and what that I think discussion it was, was I think it might have been dream theater or something <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think I because I think you liked them at the time or do or something 
um, you liked something about them and you had a really good case <laughs> for it. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, but you know what? I, I agree with you. I re- you're right. I respect your reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember what, what reasoning I was using for that discussion, but I do. Yeah. I think still it admit was, to liking dream theater. <laughs> well, there, there you go. So, I mean, and I respect the hell out of them, but like, it's just not to my tastes, but a- anyways, uh, I, I really do think that your taste in music informs your decision making. You've got great taste, so you so it's like tips on writing keyboard layers. It's like, well, you didn't need tips on writing them. You just had to figure out how to technically do it because the writing part you already had down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that if people don't know how to write, they need to learn how to write, and that's an other the whole other topic. Sure. Yeah. So. Here's a question from Sean O'Shaughnessy, which is, do you use Ableton Live for songwriting as well? And how well was Ableton Live able to solve your live rig needs? Um, I don't use Ableton for anything, but... Oh, well, then what the fuck, Sean? No, wait, for anything but the, li- <laughs> anything but the live show is what I was going to say. Oh, okay, Sean. Uh, Sean, you're off the hook. <laughs> but we, I, I pretty much rely on it for the live show. It... it houses so i have an ableton session that um has all my plugins and on the controller i'm turning on and off some sense sometimes because i was talking about diva earlier it's pretty hardware intensive so i can't run three of them at the same time or something like that so i i turn them off um i have faders for i guess 12 of them um and then i run a few effects, uh, sound toy stuff, um, crystallizer and echo boy. Um, and also the right now, I think we might switch the way this is working, but for the last, I guess, three years of tours, we've had the timeline, which sends Joe, uh, the click and we send tracks to the front of house, uh, for transitions, intro music and stuff. Um, we, run all the lights on that same timeline. So we have had a few different setups. I think for the next tour, we're going to have a couple movers and stuff that are programmed with the timeline. Um, We also have our house light guy doing lights live. So he kind of helps design some of that. So yeah, we rely on Ableton for a good amount of stuff. I don't know anything about it, but people who use it tend to really like it. I, we're we're using it in kind of a strange way, to be honest. I, I I know other people that use it this way, but it's Ableton's a pretty powerful piece of software, and it can be applied in a million different ways. So, like the people that use it for real, I think of as you know electronic artists and stuff like so, that. So you're saying that you don't use it for real, even though you tour around the world, <laughs> <laughs> you put out records well, and then tour I, around I guess the I world. Clarify. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. Um, I guess I should clarify for real being more of the intended use of the design of the software. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, so here's a question from Johnny Marsh. The Contortionists are the tightest live band I've ever seen. I'd like to ask Eric about pre-production. When getting ready to record an album, what approach do you use? How much work is done beforehand to cut down on time in the studio? It seems to me that you can get bogged down when making demos with minor things that feel important at the time, but maybe aren't. But I still want the demos to sound as good as they can. 
Can I just interrupt real quick, Johnny? That's probably because you're not going to a producer like Jamie or some, <laughs> or, you know, you're not, you probably want it to sound as good as they can because you're not going to like one of the very best afterwards to do your record for real. So it, I feel like if you know that you're going to the studio with a powerhouse producer or a powerhouse mixer, you, it, takes the stress off of the demos. But what about you, Eric? What's, what are your thoughts? Well, that's a good question. Um, at the same time that I can say that our demos, like for Clairvoyant, our demos sounded collectively better than they ever have. I mean, we, you know, drum software these days is great. Um, pretty much everyone had a desk set up. So Joe's on his computer programming beats and Robbie had a recording set up. I had a recording set up. Cam had a recording set up. Um, so it was very easy these days to get a decent enough sounding demo where we're getting the idea across. Now, I remember not too long ago myself, the the quality of demos does matter in the sense of being a young band and showing your music to other people and things like that. We, luckily we don't have to show this stuff to anybody but the five other people in the band. So if I make, if I have a crappy performance of a part, I can be like, yo, Robbie, check this out. Yeah, fuck this part up. Don't listen to it, you know? Um, and he'll get it, you know? And I don't have to worry about impressing someone to get them more interested in my band. Um, so that's a comfortable situation. The demos, it, you shouldn't get too bogged down by it. You should just keep recording them and re-recording them because every time I, I've found every time I re-record guitars on a project or you know re-record a part on the keys that I did in pre-production, it gets a little bit better in some small way that I wouldn't have thought of without going through the process of building it back brick by brick. So I, I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but well, I think that um, it is a good answer first of all and. The one thing you didn't answer, though, is how much work is done beforehand oh. to cut down on time in the studio? Well, more work, more work could be done, for sure. I feel like sometimes any one of us, we were, we were all making demos, which was kind of cool. Um, that, let me just tell you, that that's a huge step up from when the band came to me. Yeah. When the band came to me, they only had, like, four songs ready. Yeah. Um and had to like write them there. So it sounds like already the band is light years ahead of where they were. It it was cool because we were able to carve out enough time for us to remove distractions and really get together and do it. I mean, we have, we started, I, I lost count at a certain point, but we had to leave more songs behind to finish the ones on Clairvoyant. At a certain point, we had to be like, we need to stop working on this other stuff. As much fun as it is, we know we don't have time to put it on the record and we need to focus on these 10 songs or whatever. Um, there was a lot of that where I was getting stressed like three weeks, three weeks left with Jamie and we were still working on stuff that wasn't going to make the record and stuff. So it's just like we were able to have some options. And I guess I, I talked earlier about that situation being comfortable, we never would have been able to do that and had that much stuff on the table to look at and, and ideas and song songs written almost if we weren't in that comfortable situation. Uh, we still ended up, um, you know, rushing and getting everything done. Re that last week was definitely busy. Um, so we could have prepared better. You can always prepare better in hindsight. 
but uh, all of yeah, us can't. You know, nobody ever does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's. I'll, I'll also say that the situation with clairvoyant, where we we went to Maine for four weeks, and then I spent an, an extra four weeks in Indianapolis with the guys doing doing writing in between tours, and uh, you know both of those months. I consider pre-production months. And so we came to Jamie's with a lot of music demoed out. And um, yeah, I guess I guess we did prepare pretty well. But that, that's a super rare situation to be able to do that. Every other recording I've done has not been that comfortable. You're, you're like, like you were saying, Al, you're a band with four songs and you've got to get 60 minutes out. Yeah, they had four songs. Only they had like a bunch more in a guitar pro, but they had yeah. only ever played through. So I counted as four because they had only ever even like physically attempted to play through four of them, and then had to like come up with and learn how to play and like yeah finish the rest of them, and it was stressful. <laughs> I I think language to compare the two. I think it was evenly still guitar profiles, but they but they definitely had more music uh, going into the studio than intrinsic. And now in Clairvoyant, we we've got we had to leave music behind. So that's great. Yeah, it's the evolution of a band right there. I want to I want to do another record immediately. I want to go back and finish these songs. Like I I don't know when we're going to record again, but I I want to. I don't want to leave it for too long because there's there's lots of good stuff. I, I'm curious to hear what you consider good stuff that didn't make it to the record because I've listened to the record and it's really cool. Well, thanks, man. I, was it just stuff that didn't fit? Because the record has a very particular vibe to it. There, there was there was some uh, decision making that was related to how it fit to the other songs we already knew were going to be there. It was also a bit of sort of having a day to look at everything at once and decide, okay, songs in this pile, we're definitely not going to be able to finish by the, we only got three weeks left, you know? Um, so, so there was some, there was some decision-making that was sort of made for us just because the, these songs got the most attention because they excited somebody whether you know, mm-hmm. whether it was, say say Robbie would throw a song on the table, and Joe and I would work on it for a week, and that song would be sounding awesome because we gave it that attention. So we basically went with what got the most attention by a certain point in the process, and I think that's a great way to go in some ways. Um, I do also think that, like I said, there's still a lot of good stuff on the table. So I, that's why I want to record again is because some stuff simply didn't couldn't make the cut because we didn't all have time to to dig in with it. But that's fine. It's there for the next time. Great answer. Well, Eric, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate this. It was great to catch up with you because I haven't talked to you a lot recently. And um, everybody should go pick up Clairvoyant by The Contortionist, which is out now um by the time this podcast comes out you'll be on tour with bt bam so yeah if anyone wants to see the contortionist live um in addition to buying the record uh yeah they're gonna be on tour with between the buried and me like right now and then of course 
if that's not enough, uh, Jamie King's on Nail the Mix this month, uh, doing Return to Earth by The Contortionist. So there's lots of ways to consume this new record, um, and you should use all of them. So thank you again, sir. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.